Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the American Masterminds Podcast. Each episode, we invite extraordinary guests who are masters of their craft, they're innovators, entrepreneurs, and of course, motorcycle enthusiasts who have made their mark in the world. They share their stories, insights, and hard-earned wisdom, giving you a front row seat to the strategies and experiences that shape their successes. So sit back, grab a drink, and get ready for an exhilarating ride as we dive deep into the minds of these exceptional individuals. Along the way, we'll uncover powerful strategies, gain fresh perspectives, and explore the limitless possibilities of what it takes to be an American mastermind. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the American Masterminds podcast. I am joined tonight by my co-host, Mr. Rob Adams. How you doing? We have up on the soundboard, we got Alec Langdon. And Jared Bayless, of course, stopped in to join us tonight. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Steve Spencer. Now, Steve is a criminal defense attorney here in Salt Lake, and uh, he's here to drop some wisdom on us, boys. We'll see if we can... Uh, also, this is maybe the guy that uh, represents us when we get in trouble. Maybe Alex, I'm looking comes. at you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get you on retainer sooner yeah. than later. <laughs> what? I had Steve on retainer the third day I met him. <laughs> Walked in, gave him a dollar, and said... And we're guy. good, right? Yeah. <laughs> good call. So, uh, Steve, here's the, the breaking news of the day. We got uh, Donald Trump that went in for a mugshot. Did you guys all hear this? I did not. I bet you, by the time this podcast is done, Alec will be able to find it because they're saying it's going to be the most famous picture ever. Right now, the current longest standing picture, the most famous picture in the world, is uh, one of Elvis. And I think it's the black and white one where he's talking into the, or singing in the mic, you mm. know? And they're saying because this particular picture is a, uh, it's a mugshot, so it's public record, so nobody owns it. So anybody can go in, take it. Like, you're going to see this thing on T-shirts and everywhere. You can free use. So big special day. Good day to have an attorney, hon. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. (laughs) So, Steve, I know one of the first topics that you kind of wanted to get down, and um, we've got a bunch of guys here that are gun nuts, all right, All, all four of us here. So um, why don't you walk us through some of the lesser-known gun laws uh, that pertain to carry? Because that's a big question. All right, very well. Well, there has been a new, relatively new development in Utah law in uh, February of uh, 2021, so about two and a half years ago. Uh, Governor Cox uh, signed into law House Bill 60, uh, which is uh, what is commonly known as constitutional carry. So uh, most people who have any familiarity uh, with guns and gun owner issues are familiar with the concealed carry permit, which is issued uh, by the Department of Public Safety Bureau of Criminal Identification. And uh, they still issue concealed carry permits. However, at the present time and since February of 2021, it is lawful to carry a concealed handgun on your person or in your vehicle so long as you are not a restricted person. Uh, Brief examples of restricted persons, uh, people with a felony conviction, uh, people with uh, misdemeanor uh, or felony domestic violence conviction, uh, people who are uh, habitual users of illegal narcotics, Hunter Biden, uh, <laughs> sorry. Can't carry. Uh, yeah. Here in Utah. And if you throw that, it in a dumpster out back, that's still illegal yeah, too. He can get away with it. But if you're not a restricted person, you can legally carry 
a concealed, uh, under the constitutional carry theory, you can carry a loaded firearm on your person or in your vehicle. Now, uh, having said that, it's important to also note there are some areas in the state of Utah, uh, such as school grounds, uh, such as national parks, where it is not legal to carry in that manner. And so, for example, if you're driving in your car, you have a loaded handgun with you. If you drive onto school grounds and you exit your vehicle, you may have a problem. So uh, people should be aware of that. Uh, but constitutional carry, of course, is, uh, it, it is a victory for law-abiding gun owners, I think. Um, and Just, so, I'm sorry. Were, no, please. I, I remember that um, I was a, a police officer for about eight years, and there was um, a certain level of readiness that the gun could be in at back then. This is a minute ago. Is that still the case? Like there has to be two motions before you can, if you carry the gun on constitutional law, can you have it, can it be a chambered bullet? Can you have like, what level of readiness can you have the weapon? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, under the constitutional carry theory, the gun uh, can be loaded, which the legal definition is that it has around in the firing position. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, uh, something, to, something to note. It's not requirement to constitutional carry, as we said, to have the concealed carry permit. However, if you're going to carry a long gun in a vehicle and also have the long gun be loaded, namely having a round in the firing position, and that's also true of muzzleloaders, if the muzzleloader is, is charged muzzleloading rifle, then uh, it is unlawful to do that unless you have the concealed carry permit. Okay. So, oh, hand, really? yeah, loaded handgun in a vehicle or on your per, uh, on, in a vehicle under constitutional carry theory, but a long gun, it would be necessary to, uh, to have the concealed carry permit to have a long gun in the vehicle and also have around in the firing position. Now, if, if uh, there is two mechanical movements, okay, uh, such as uh, uh, pulling the hammer back on a revolver, okay, and then uh, pulling the trigger to, in order to get it fired, or in order to have a fire, uh, that is not considered to be loaded. So you need two mechanical movements, okay, in order to get the gun to fire, in order it, for the gun to uh, be defined uh, as loaded. Defined as unloaded legally. Uh oh, okay, yeah. okay. And and the same is and the same is true for open carry. Well, we're on the topic, so uh, you know three categories, basic categories of carrying we're talking about. We've talked about the constitutional carry, uh, the open carry, okay. Open carry is also legal in the state of Utah. It is what it sounds like. Uh, you know, you are uh, 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 carrying a firearm and it's, it's observable to other parties. Uh, open carry is legal in the state of Utah, but it cannot be loaded in the sense that there is a round in the firing position. Um, as, as we said, two mechanical movements in order to get uh, the gun to fire. And I can only imagine, I, I, I'd have to speculate somewhat without going back and reading all the transcripts uh, of, of uh, the Utah Senate, what, what the rationale is that for. But it seems uh, to me that the reason would be law enforcement comes, they see a person carrying a gun on the street. Uh, if that person has a nefarious purpose, it would only make sense that that gun is loaded. Okay, a person who's simply carrying it for protection, uh, two mechanical movements, you know, take them, take them a second. I can imagine that's for the benefit of law enforcement or so it seems to me. That, um, I like how laws can be applied to people who don't um, abide the law. Like, you know what I mean? That um, is to protect, I, I think you're right. I absolutely agree. But 
um, if someone has a nefarious um, mindset, it's they, they don't really care what the two mechanical movements are, do they? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, you know, and that's that's uh, uh, you know a debate that you know will will go on forever. You know, is is the solution to problems with guns a good guy with a gun? And uh, we won't try to unpack that today, I imagine. Yeah. Do do the rules um, for people that do have a concealed carry do those still apply like for those restricted areas? Yes. Yes, yeah, so uh, the, the, the concealed carry, okay, some of the, so the advantage of still having the permit, although it's not necessary to have it anymore under the constitutional carry theory, one advantage is you can carry uh, the loaded long gun in your vehicle, okay, with a round in the firing position if you have uh, the concealed carry. Another uh, advantage of having the concealed carry, if you, if you travel, and you know you want to carry in your travel i believe there are 38 states that have reciprocity with the state of utah uh, for the concealed carry so my advice uh to anyone who, who's doing that is make make certain that you check the gun laws in, in the state where you'll be make sure that don't uh, go to those other 20 states yeah, yeah. <laughs> make, make sure that, that, that not only uh is this the state you're going to has a reciprocity arrangement with the state of Utah or whatever state it is that issued your concealed carry permit, but check and see if there are uh, other restrictions that are not identical to you know the restrictions in, in the state of Utah. Familiarize yourself uh, with the concealed carry laws of the state where you'll be. It's common sense. Yeah. Well, when it comes to these kind of things and when the bad situations happen that's usually what's missing is common sense yeah well it's, it's good to have common sense if you have a gun that's my opinion certainly yeah and keep your drugs in a different room <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which raises another very interesting point okay uh, as a category of restricted persons we didn't talk about and uh, it, it is uh, well let me let me impact this a little bit rewind a little bit uh, Second Amendment okay uh, there is not Second Amendment protection for anyone who's in the process of committing a crime, okay? which, would which would include, of course, uh, carrying illegal narcotics on your person. If you have uh, illegal narcotics on your person and you also have a gun on your person, it could be the narcotics that you have. Uh, now, I think a small amount of methamphetamine in the state of Utah is now a Class A misdemeanor. The legislature made that change you know, years ago, so that people whose only problem with the law is 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 their drug habit that they don't have the felony conviction will, will help them get employed. I think that was the purpose of making that change in the law. But if you have methamphetamine or any other contraband narcotic and a firearm, it's a felony. Okay, and people people should be aware of that. One way to get in a lot of trouble really fast is to uh, either be intoxicated or be in possession. Of intoxicating substances and also have a gun. One way that that frequently happens, uh, people on the deer hunt sitting around the campfire, mm. um, you know, having a few shots of whiskey, having a few beers, uh, you know, game warden uh, comes to, to, to check permits, to check tags, and, and notices that uh, people are, are, are drinking, that they seem to be impaired, and they also have, have their guns. They're, they're going to get a ticket, and they might lose their guns. They might lose their hunting privileges, at least for a time. So people, people should be aware of that. If you're going to have a, a drink on the hunt, uh, I suppose if you're having it before bed around the campfire and you're going to 
be able to sleep it off plenty well. That's not a problem, but my advice would be put the gun in the car, put it in the case, lock the car, uh, lock the case. You know, put, put the bullets away separately, and, and then I, I can't imagine that there would be a problem if you're having a, a few drinks around the campfire. But, of course, uh, my unsolicited advice, which I realize people don't want even from me, would be that you know if you're on a hunting trip, it would be really poor judgment to consume alcohol to the point uh, that uh, you know there would be a problem, say, if, if uh, you would get a DUI if you were to get in a vehicle, something like that. That's just poor judgment. I've often thought about being a, after being an officer for eight years, I've thought about being a game warden and rolling up on a campsite full of buddies who have been drinking, who are armed, like, that's terrifying. There's that. There's yes. there's a lot of other things. I would rather pull over a low rider in West Valley than roll up to a campsite full of drunk hunters. Yeah. It's a that would be. Uh, I would be. I don't. I don't know if I would. I just have a good night, fellas. You don't hear a lot about that. You don't. You don't. You really don't. But I can see how it could be a problem as really. per the law goes. But that's something a, I've never thought about either. It'd be a terrifying job. Yeah. That's not where I'd want to be, because you're wrong no matter what. Yep. Yeah. And usually the people that are out hunting, A, they know how to use the guns that they have. You Most know, of the time. And, and Pretty well. how to aim them and everything like that. But um, they're also, that's usually a testosterone outlet is yeah. the, is the Especially hunt. with your with your with all your buddies. And, and you're drunk. Right. Yeah. Testosterone flowing. Yeah. Yikes. Interesting stuff. So as the... Um, as these laws have changed, have you, um, in your profession, seen um, a, the change in the, the face of the crimes that you're, you're looking at? Are these things that you have to weigh regularly as I had the gun, it was two mechanical movements away, or does it really weigh in very much to your business? Uh, well, uh, you know, another, another good question. Uh, I have not uh, had any cases, and, and I, I do, you know, hundreds of cases a year. Uh, I've not had a, a case where people have been charged with a violation of the open carry law or the constitutional carry law. I've not seen that yet. It doesn't mean that it's coming. But on that on that topic, what I do see, uh, common problems that gun owners have that get them in trouble uh, generally and jeopardize their gun rights. Uh, one is uh, what is known in the Utah State Code as colloquially as brandishing. A firearm. Uh, so, in other words, you know, the, the question is, okay, if, if you simply have a firearm and someone else to, else, you know, is able to observe the firearm, they can see you have the firearm. Uh, you know, is is there a possibility that the circumstances uh, may create a problem for the person possessing the firearm? Something that often happens in the midst of a road rage incident or other type of an incident. Uh, one driver who happens to have a gun with them will show the gun to the, a person that they're having an argument with. Um, perhaps the subjective intent is to warn the other person that they don't want to pursue a physical altercation because uh, you know their, their, their partner in the argument uh, is armed. But uh, what, uh, what the, the law does, the prosecutors at least, they, uh, they construe that as being presenting the gun in, in a threatening manner. So brandishing is a class A misdemeanor under Utah law. Mm. Uh, it's a fairly serious crime. Misdemeanors in Utah are A, B, and C in that, in that order. It can even result in a jail sentence of up to 364 days. Mm. But it's a, it's a common thing that people 
who are, are just in a heated argument will make the other person aware that they're armed by presenting the gun. And uh, the, the, the theory under which that's prosecuted is that simply presenting it under those circumstances is, uh, is an implied threat. And, and, and many people who are otherwise, uh, I think, law-abiding and, and decent people make that mistake. Mm. Yeah. On I've, the force of continuum, the force continuum, they t teach you in the police academy, um, that's the one step before um, death. Action. It's, yeah, if you show someone the gun, that's, that's when I was in the business, that's what they would consider that is like you are giving them a lethal threat. It's right. not just like, hey, back off. Yeah. I know I've definitely thought about doing this yeah. a no. couple times in my life. I'm like, man. That one guy on the highway that cut Roger off? Mm. Yeah. Prime. He almost got prime example. from everybody. Yeah. Well, let me just say, boys, I think um, in my experience with law enforcement, if you take your gun out, you're killing somebody. Yes. Right. Period. There's no other reason to take your gun out. And, and that's, when you and when you take the gun out, the intention is not to even wound them. Right. No, it's, it's, it's over time. It's, it's go time. And so I, that is the thing that I really liked. I've taken the concealed um, course a few times. And that's the one thing that I really appreciated about it is they reiterate that over and over again. This isn't show and tell. This right. is, I'm taking this out to protect my life. Period. Period. Interesting point that you raise that even for, even for police officers, okay, they don't take their gun out randomly, haphazardly, okay? It's a very intentional thing, and it has to be done correctly. On the force continuum. Yes, and uh, I think it's, I just, just want to clarify, uh, to be charged and even convicted with the crime of brandishing is not necessary to point the weapon. It's not necessary that the weapon be loaded. It's not even necessary that it be a real gun. If it's a facsimile of a gun, if it would appear to the other party that this may in fact be a real gun, the fact that it's a BB gun or even uh, less, less of a gun, a stage facsimile or something like that, uh, the elements of, of brandishing are still met. Wow, lethal threat. Well, it's even like the, the gangster move, right? You can just pull your shirt up like that? Yes. Brandishing. That's brandishing, right? That would be brandishing because you, you've displayed the firearm in, in, a in a threatening manner. Now, ultimately, right. that question would be up to a jury. If a person, you know, defended themselves and they proceeded all the way to trial, the jury would, would answer that question, but uh, it, the jury would get written instructions about what the crime is. So the, the possibility of the jury looking at those circumstances and saying, yeah, no, I'm not concerned, it's, it, it's, it's not like that, okay? But a lot of people don't understand that when uh, people are impaneled on a jury, they get many, many written instructions instructing them what the law is, and uh, they're, they're expected to follow the instructions. They can determine the facts as they believe them to be, but they must follow the instructions that they're given. So it's very serious business when it comes to that level. Interesting. So let me ask you this. Okay, so we, you, you kind of mentioned you got constitutional carry, you got open carry, and then concealed carry. Okay, there's a lot of questions for maybe those that aren't in the know. Um, you have constitutional carry, which means you can, you can have it. What is the advantage, or what would your recommendation be in having the concealed carry permit? Well, um, one advantage of, uh, we talked about some of the advantages, such as reciprocity arrangements with the majority of states. Uh, you know, another ad advantage, I suppose, is uh, when you go and, uh, uh, you know, purchase a new firearm that having the concealed carry permit will, will streamline that process. Does it provide any protection that the constitu to, uh, constitutional carry does not? Uh, 
in terms of your rights and whatnot in having that gun? Well, it does, as I mentioned, allows you to have a loaded long gun in a vehicle. Um, um, but it, it, as far as the places that you can take a weapon, or, uh, the, the, or the manner in which you can carry or transport the weapon, such as in a vehicle, on your person, uh, uh, someplace like that. Uh, I, I, there, there, there are no important differences that I can think of. I think the principal differences, the important differences, I think you, you leave the state and go to a state with reciprocity, you still have protection, you can carry a loaded long gun in a vehicle, <clears throat> Excuse me, which brings me to another point I don't want to forget to make. Um, you know, not all gun people are hunters, I understand that, but of course uh, many are. Uh, there's a lot of misconception I, I've noticed in the state of Utah about uh, whether the concealed carry permit uh, or constitutional carry would allow a person to carry a loaded handgun, meaning ground in the firing position, or, or long gun, while they're actually hunting. Okay, if you are actually hunting, then the concealed carry permit and, con and also constitutional carry does not allow you to carry a loaded gun in the vehicle while you are hunting. That is, that's still unlawful. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a, that's a separate theory. That's under the, the umbrella of, uh, you know, we want to put limitations you know, on firepower so that hunting is sportsmanlike. Is right. sportsmanlike. People right. are not... Uh, you know, shooting from loaded vehicles at, at wild game or stepping out of the vehicle and immediately firing. Um, you know, and I think there's also probably a safety consideration uh, in, involved in that. But yes, a lot of people are under the perception, uh, the misperception rather, that they can carry a loaded gun in their vehicle while they're hunting. And uh, I say in, I should probably say in or on because the cases that I've seen usually it's people who are on uh, four-wheelers, on ATVs, who encounter uh, law enforcement at, at a checkpoint, or they're, they're you know, checking uh, for valid license and things like that, and then they have rifle in the scabbard on the ATV and around in the firing position. They get a ticket for that. Hmm. What is that ticket? How much does it affect their, their ability to hunt or have the guns? Um, you know what? I, I I'm embarrassed. I would have to like review that, but I think it's it's uh, it's it'd be a misdemeanor charge, uh, but uh, it it could, you know, possibly uh, affect your hunting rights, uh, at least in the short term. So people should just be aware of that. Yeah. And you know, some people are looking for an unfair advantage in in hunting, and you know, I, I know that from a lot of experience and you know, representing people with who are charged with violating. Uh, game laws, um, but uh, in order to get you know the advantage uh, in the hunt, it, it's just not worth it, and it's just also not worth the safety risk. Hmm. It's two movements. It's it's not. Yeah, it's, that's ridiculous. Uh, ridiculous argument, in my my opinion, right? Yeah. Right. So, right. Um, can I ask you, Steve? Look, why criminal? Why criminal law? Like, what was that? Because there's so many laws to choose from these days. <laughs> what attracted you to this this business? Boy, that's, uh, uh, that's a, another very good question. It sounds like I'm trying to sell you life insurance because I keep complimenting on your questions, but no, you're... you're they, it, it, you're that's why you're, they keep me around. You're setting me up <laughs> to, like, to say something, something important or interesting. Um, well, you know, um, when I went to law school, 
uh, like a lot of people, I imagine, I, I felt like what I saw in TV and movies about, you know, about lawyering was like some reflection of reality, and it's not. Um, it's all way over-dramatized, and, um, you know, like watch, if you watch Perry Mason, you know, Della Street, his secretary is a genius, and he has one case at a time, and, and he always wins. Yeah, um, it'd be great to be Perry Mason, but you know the reality of the law business is it's just a tough business. And I found out after I got into it that if you're in private practice, that the majority of people who ever hire a lawyer are probably hiring a lawyer because they're getting divorced or they've had a, a, a child out of wedlock and have you know parent time, similar cut parent time, child support type issues, uh, or else they're filing bankruptcy. And uh, that, that's probably at least two-thirds of the people who are hiring a lawyer one time in their life, I think, are, are doing it for that reason. Uh, you know, criminal defense, um, it, it's a little bit difficult to uh, fill your, your pipe or fill your dance card, so to speak, with uh, criminal defense type cases. Uh, but, you know, I, I, think that, uh, I think that they're interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to, I think, to help people who are worthy of a little help. Uh, I mean, I do do it for profit, I'll admit that. But I think a lot of people have the misconception that what I'm doing is partnering with hardened criminals and helping them deceive the court. Uh, I would characterize it, it's more like uh, I'm the pastor of their parish and I'm helping them come to Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I would characterize it. In other words, uh, in other words, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, they just have a really bad day where they are under a lot of pressure and uh, made some they, choices. they made some poor choices. They exercised some poor judgment and now they got to fix it. And so I do that. But I, I suppose to answer your question, you know, why that over other things. I, I do many things, you know, as a solo practitioner or as a member of a very small firm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, just, I, I just enjoy, I guess, the stories. It's interesting to, to see the stories and see what happens. And uh, uh, honestly, it's one of the less stressful things I do. I do uh, other things, other areas of practice. I've done many divorces. I've done a lot of probate. Uh, litigation. I've done a lot of contract litigation. You know, sometimes criminal law is very stressful when you're involved in in uh, narratives of just you know heinous and deplorable events. It can be, uh, but but uh, usually it's not. Usually, uh, you know, what I'm doing is I'm helping people, you know, fix a problem they have so life can go on. Okay. Go ahead. I'm well, sorry. I can kind of speak to that too. Obviously, Steve and I work together. Um, you know, the difference is, is there's a couple of big differences. Number one, the court process, criminal law is completely different than all the other laws. In criminal law, the court sets the schedule, okay? So there's a system and a process to how a, a criminal case goes through the, through the system. Whereas if you're doing a divorce, you know, <clears throat> A. You're waiting. You're waiting. Party A has to get with party B. Then they have to have a meeting to set the meeting to have with the court. Like there's a lot more proof and different yeah, things. Yeah, and it, it just sucks. It mm. just, and then you're arguing over who gets the dog this week, who gets the, right. you know, who gets the John Elway signed football and the, the, nobody's taken out of the, the closet for 15 years, you know, that football. sort of thing. Yeah. It's and a good football. You, but had, you had kids and that amplifies Amplifies everything. the whole thing. And then you're, you're uh, you know, the, the, the 
emotional tie to it. You know, they're so heated in a, mm. in a divorce that, you know, it, it just makes everything more stressful. Where it's like, we have kind of a saying around the office, whether true or not, you know, 99% of our, our clients, they're good people that did something stupid. You know, if it wasn't for stupid, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in business. Very few of them are actually like the, hard the cold, criminals. hard criminals that, that, you know, you see on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Dexter. Dexter, right. And, it, and honestly, the, in my opinion, maybe you can speak to this, the, the ones that most of them, like the DUIs, the, even the gun charges and whatnot, eh, to some level, and you can kind of empathize and you can get, you know, understand what happened. The, the real cases that are really, really bad are the child molestation. When that one comes in or children are hurt in any way, shape, or form, that's where the criminal law really gets tough. That's my opinion anyway. What would you say to that, Steve? Uh, I would agree. Yeah, I would agree. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, another comment that comes to mind, which I hope is entertaining, and we're not, I'm just not wandering into the weeds. <laughs> um, um, er, the only happy thing that ever happens in the courthouse is an adoption. A uh, child with only one parent gets two parents, and if that family functions well, that's, that's a very good thing for that child. But, uh, you know, law, uh, it, when I say it's a tough business, one aspect of that is that, you know, whenever people are in court, their litigation, you know, emotions are high, you know, the, the tension level is high. Uh, there's a lot at stake. You know, people are, are very emotional and, and they tend to be at their worst. That's, I think that's an accurate characterization based on 24 years of experience of doing it well how don't how um so i'm i'm in a business where it's very emotional and that's uh, and it's easy to buy into it it's easy to to be mad it's easy to feel those feelings how do you stay distant and um you know what's the word i'm looking for here you keep compartmentalized your, not compartmentalized but you're saying you're objective you're still objective yeah. on the um, keep the disconnect yeah yeah, um, you know, that's interesting. Uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that the experience of uh, all the people that have, uh, you know, pursued the practice of law as their occupation or profession uh, have had uh, different experiences that still have a common denominator. Um, it's easier for me now than it first was. And, and, and when I say it first, I'm talking about a period of like five, six, seven, eight years after 15 or 20 years of doing it, I can compartmentalize it easier than I, I could at first. Um, you know, another, another comment that comes to mind is that uh, it, it, it's, it's important as, as a business that you can make customers feel like that you care about them, you care about their situation, you've got their back. If they don't feel you caring about them, then you know, they're going to pick one of your competitors many times. and so. They have to have the experience of, I think, really feeling that they've, they've got a friend in their attorney. Uh, but at the same time, uh, one reason that I have a job, I think, is to infuse highly emotional situations uh, with some logic and common sense. Hmm. In other words, when emotions are running high and people are primarily interested in vindicating their principle, it's good to have a voice that says, look at this as a business decision, look at this as, as a problem that's costing you a great deal, and find uh, the least expensive way to fix it. Mm. Um, wow. 
I like how you say that because really what you're saying is, is it more important to be right or to be less harmed? Because people being right sometimes isn't the easiest way to, even if I think I'm right, I'm right, I'm, I'm innocent or whatever that is, yeah. that might not necessarily be the right answer. And, and litigants, uh, they, can, they can choose their path. My ethical responsibility to them is to allow them to do that, is to give them competent advice, uh, but l allow them to make their own decision. Hmm. Uh, but I think, especially as I've gotten older and, uh, you know, I become more seasoned in the business, uh, uh, you know, I, I have some very direct talks with a lot of clients uh, if I feel like they're being foolish. And, of course, the, the art is to uh, help them understand the rationale of the advice without experiencing it as a personal affront or criticism. So you don't start out the conversation, listen, stupid. You know, that's, you know, that's not, that's stop not that. breaking the law. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I appreciate how wrong you are right now, but. <laughs> you know, I'll, give, I'll give Steve this. He, he does get some of the, the trickier clients that we have come through for this exact reason. We call it Steve going into John Wayne mode. Oh. Okay. Because, like, yeah, he has a really good, and it's kind of funny when you watch him, he, he sits up, his whole posture changes when, it, when they, it gets these clients on. He's like, okay, now knock it off. Here's what is going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, and on, on that topic, um, you know, perhaps uh, in our audience there will be people who are grappling with this very issue. They've got a problem with the law. They're looking for representation. They're trying to make a good decision about what lawyer they choose. And everybody wants to feel like they've made a good decision. But, uh, uh, you know, without, without getting too specific, some unsolicited advice uh, that I would give people in that situation, understanding that people don't want, usually want unsolicited advice, even from a lawyer when they have legal problem. They want to ask for it first. But, uh, you know, there are certain members of the legal profession who I, I think have uh, something of, uh, of an unhealthy symbiotic relationship where you know they play into the client's passion in order to you know, they fuel the client's uh, passion in order to win them over and uh, depending on the circumstances very often they're not doing them a favor very often i feel like at least they should be the voice of reason uh, you know telling them to find another way out of this problem uh, rather than uh, you know just Telling them they're right. Uh, yeah, and, and telling them they're right when they're not right, uh, you know, uh, in, like fueling their anger. It's like, uh, it's like a, a parent being a parent instead of a friend. Yes. you got to tell them when they're not right. <laughs> it's interesting, yes. though, that if you, don't, if you take ego out of the equation, what do you want most? I want you to be honest with me. I, please tell me the truth. But when I've got my ego involved and I think I'm right, this is what that other guy did and that guy's a jerk. I want to get whatever. That's that. That would be a very difficult mind shift to make. Like, how do when I was talking about being objective, that's really what I was talking about. Is like I've got to bring you around because that's my job. The problem um, that I can see with your job is a lot of people don't want you to be honest with them. Yeah, interesting, uh, interesting point because you know my my own opinion and recognizing I'm not a licensed therapist, I I don't have. A credential like that. You should have one after 20 years. But, yeah, but I think what, what life has taught me uh, is that uh, like honesty and respect is the only legitimate foundation of any relationship. You can't have human interaction 
uh, that it, it is a positive interaction without honesty and respect. But you can imagine, it, 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 as, it, as you said, uh, you know, people come in to a lawyer's office, they've been in charge of the crime, whether it's a serious crime or not, but they're not really honest with their lawyer. They, they, many of them, you know, tell the lawyer what they think the lawyer needs to hear in order for the lawyer to go and do, uh, you know, what the client would like them to do. That's, that's not every case, certainly, uh, but it does happen not infrequently. Uh, and that's a problem because the lawyer, like a computer, it's not going to, you know, process the information in a way that's any better than the raw data itself. Yeah. If you put uh, incorrect data in the computer, it's going to give you, you know, it's going to compute you, give, give you a bad outcome. <clears throat> and and uh, conversely, it's it's uh, also true as I mentioned, you know, before certain members of the profession, uh, you know, if they agree with the client, if they I encourage them uh, in uh, a thinking error that they're having, or you know, a, a pursuit that they would that is inadvisable, or a strategy that's inadvisable. Not only are they, is that client not getting the benefit. Okay, of, of having uh, good legal advice, uh, this relationship is already in trouble. And uh, as a client, you you know, I, I'm sure that nobody would want to, or they, they shouldn't want to be by, represented by a lawyer who's not having a good relationship with them. It's interesting, uh, the consequence of that relationship is, um, the, the effect of that consequence is borne by the client. Um, if you give poor advice as an attorney and it doesn't work out the way that you had anticipated, well, you're not the one going to jail. That would be the client going to jail. And so it really makes me think if I were to be looking for a criminal defense attorney, um, what are some of the key components that I really want besides that honesty and integrity? Like if I were to come in and I'm interviewing, what are the top two or three things that I need to keep in mind in order to choose someone that's going to represent my interests best? Well, boy, another another uh, great question. Thank you. I, I think that uh, you know I uh, one 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 comment that comes to mind is that you know lawyers are a bunch of status seekers. Not all of them, but as a group, they are. Lawyers are very caught up in where did you go to school? What was your class rank? What do you drive? Yeah, thir thirty years later, um, after all this water has gone under the bridge, you know, lawyers are so many of them are interested in, you know, what was the the status of the law school they attended? What was their class rank? But I think what really helps uh, lawyers succeed in the practice of law, like many other uh, professions, many other industries, is having uh, uh, common sense and people skills. Uh, I would uh, tell people who are like looking for a lawyer to pay attention to their to their own feelings, to listen to themselves, and uh, ask themselves who makes you feel comfortable. Okay, who are you comfortable with? Who do you who do you feel like you can trust to be straight with you? That's really important. Um, obviously, it would be you know great to get a referral. Uh, from somebody who's used that lawyer's services, if, if you know someone or if, you know, uh, there are problems with lawyers just giving names of former clients out. There's a confidentiality issue there. Sure. So that's a little tricky, a little complicated. Uh, but, you know, I would say, you know, ask the lawyer, uh, you know, how long they've been doing those kind of cases. <coughs> ask the lawyer, uh, excuse me, 
ask a lawyer why they would recommend themselves as opposed to some non-specific other individual competitor. Mm, that's a good idea. So the interview question would be, Steve, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I mean, this is the trouble that I'm having. This is the, this is what I'm look, the help that I'm looking for. Why are you the best in the business at it? Yeah. Or, you know, if not the best, you know, why, why should I hire you? What's the benefit of hiring you? versus you know why, why a, a, a randomly selected person of like similar background what do i get for choosing you yeah <clears throat> and uh, i wouldn't hold myself out as being you know singularly unique that's that's pretentious and, and dishonest i mean there's a lot of very capable people in the legal profession and some that are less than capable um, but uh, having said that, I, I think that the way that I would answer that question, one way that I would answer that question, I think, uh, is that I would assure the client that they can trust that I'll always be really straight with them. I'll always tell them what I feel they need to know that I won't hold back if I have advice for them, if I have a take on something or opinion about something that affects them, I'm going to tell them about it. I'm going to tell them straight. I'm going to do that in a respectful way and then let them make their decision, but I'm not going to let them uh, make a decision without the benefit of my advice because I'm concerned that I may lose their, their business. And that's the rub, that's the real rub. If you're hiring a real estate agent, or excuse me, I'm a real estate agent, so I, what you're saying really applies <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, an attorney, um, I, I lose business because I say, I, I know that other person told you you could sell your home for a million dollars, but it's only worth seven fifty. That's what it's really worth. It's hard to have the. It's hard to do that because I know I'm going to lose the business. It's hard to I, I, to be that person, but I I always benefit in asking in in that regard. And I'm not trying to t turn this towards me, but I I can I've never really done the comparison with a an attorney saying, well, here's what how this is this is my opinion of how this is going to go down, and then you get a second opinion from an attorney, and they're like, oh no, you're, I'm going to get you off a hundred percent. I would, it would be hard not to buy into the bullshit is what I'm saying. Like I want to get off. I, I don't want to go to jail for my bad day. And so it, that's a tricky, that's a tricky, um, yeah. it would be a tricky thing to choose an attorney that's got your best interest in mind. But at the end of the day, when you don't get a million dollars or you don't get off. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine that this, what the situation would be like a person a client believing they could win at trial who proceeds to trial and uh, then they they're convicted at trial especially convicted of a serious crime or, or, or crimes and uh, uh, what they really what they really needed is the right advisor to talk them out of that strategy and they didn't have it um, you know in, in the end although it's the clients prerogative to choose the objective uh, if they end up in a worse place, a far worse place, because they didn't get the right advice, of course, that's that's the lawyer's failing. It's the client's failing if they didn't listen to good advice. Uh, but to, to not receive it, that that you know that would be, you know, the, one of the worst scenarios I can imagine. So it's, <clears throat> that seems to me almost like a malpractice. I, I don't th can't think of a better word, but a malpractice in a doctor's case for him misdiagnosing or miss or whatever. Is there any, um, do you hold any liability looking backwards on p 
or advice? Oh, certainly. And certainly uh, one of the uh, licensing issues, and, and there is an organization called the Utah State Bar. It is a state agency. It licenses lawyers. It uh, monitors the conduct of lawyers. But in the, in the canon of, of professional uh, ethics for lawyers, one of those uh, one of those ethical duties is to provide competent representation. So aside from having a license, merely having the license to practice law, okay, that's a licensing issue, but there is a separate competency issue because you have a license doesn't necessarily mean that you you're competent yeah. to provide a, a certain service. That's, that's a separate thing and a lawyer uh, who does not provide competent services is subject to discipline, potentially. With that, <clears throat> with that licensing board, is there a, a certain number of um, continuing education hours that you need to get annually? Uh, yes. Right now, the requirement is that uh, lawyers, licensed lawyers, to maintain their license, complete 12 continuing education hours per year. And are there mandatory um, hours associated, like ethics is a part of, like that you have to do it every four years or something like that? Yeah, so every year, I think the requirement <clears throat> is right now that uh, the 12 hours uh, that uh, you need to complete and document every year, that one of those hours has to be in ethics, and I think one of them has to be in what they call professionalism and civility. So there's one of the one of the, the, the downsides of uh, being a member of the legal profession is, you know, there's a lot of conflict, there's a lot of friction, there are rules that govern lawyers just simply being professional, being courteous and decent to each other in a situation that's, you know, high conflict, emotionally charged, you know, a, a lot of, you know, you know, bad behavior can still be curtailed, at least hopefully. And that would be uh, managed by the licensing, the, the board, the bar, the Utah State Bar, they're the ones that manage it and they have like a, they would probably have a committee for complaints and, and all of those things where they're managing that on the regular, like keeping an eye on their uh, that, industry. That, that's correct. Uh, I, I'm you know certainly not an expert on like the, the, the procedural aspect of disciplinary actions because uh, I've never had one. Congratulations. Frankly. I don't want to overshare. It's the goal. You never have one. I don't want to overshare. But uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I've had situations where you know somebody you know com complained to the bar, and the bar you know made me respond. But I've never gone down the road of actually being in disciplinary action. Gotcha. All, the, all the you know complaints I've ever been involved in were were uh, terminated at that level, just the inquiry or investigation uh, level. But yes, uh, for somebody who has a concern that their lawyer has engaged in unethical conduct as it affects them, that is, uh, that is the forum to begin a grievance process as the Utah State Bar. Hmm. Well, that's, a, that's probably a really important point to touch on real fast. If you've been practicing law for 20 years, okay, 20 plus years, you're going to have, somebody's going to complain to the bar. Not everybody is, is happy, you know, it's just inevitable to, to have happen. Um, I don't think that you should dock somebody, you know, if you haven't had a bar complaint once or twice, you haven't been practicing enough, you haven't tried enough cases. Um, but for you to say that, where there hasn't been any disciplinary, anybody can make a complaint to the bar, they will investigate it, and yours have all been cut off right at the, right at the jump street of that, that initial inquiry. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Is, that public, is that public record? Like if somebody was gonna choose a lawyer, can they research if they have had complaints, complaints at the bar? Yes. Yes. Yes, that information is publicly available. Okay. Let me ask you this: uh, shifting gears a little bit away from the the ethics of the of the business, um, 
when I've done interviews or I've talked to people, um, I find myself, I'm a, I'm a, I ask good questions. I'm a pretty good judge of character. Um, the, the questions that you're asking, the story that you're hearing, that you're learning that, okay, this is what happened and then what happened and then what happened. Let's go over it again. What do you do um, in order to make sure that you're getting to really the meat of the instance or the truth of the story? Well, there, there is a, a procedure uh, that is, uh, you know, routinely utilized. It's known, lawyers call it discovery. So when a person is charged with a crime, one of their rights is to have a copy of any records that are contained in the prosecutor's file. It's necessary to invoke that right by requesting that in writing, but once the request is in writing is made, uh, the prosecutors have to provide you with a copy of whatever records that they have that they've used in their investigation or the police who are involved in the investigation have just turned over to them. Uh, you know, you're entitled to have that. And as an attorney, one of the important services that I'm providing to anybody who's charged with a, a, public, defense, a public offense, uh, or in other words, a, a crime, is that I am evaluating the case uh, by using that as, as one source of information also. So of course, you know, it's, it's important that because the client can tell me their version of events, you know, tell me that information, but then I also have the ability to see, you know, what other people are saying. So I can uh, imagine, especially having, you know, been to, you know, well over a hundred trials in, in my life and being a lawyer in those trials, I can visualize what the cast of characters are gonna be who is going to come, what they're going to say, um, how that's going to play for the jury in light of what else the jury is going to know about that person, um, uh, that sort of thing. That's, and that's really a, a very important part of the service that I'm providing is after I look at all these different sources of information, I have a pretty good idea about how this is going to go for them uh, if it goes to the mat, so to speak. Now, uh, another, I think, uh, fact worth mentioning is the vast majority of criminal cases. I, I don't know uh, a, a actual number, but I would estimate it 97 or 98% of those cases settle. So the, most cases are not going to trial. Wow. Most cases uh, are settling, like almost all cases uh, settle. And the reason for that, I think, is that when you have an attorney on each side of the aisle, you have a prosecutor, you have a defense attorney, both of them are looking at the same evidence, even though you know, for example, some witnesses may be lying, but both attorneys are considering all these moving parts and they can down, they can come down, they can come to an agreement about a range of likely outcomes. And it's apparent enough, usually uh, it, it ends in a settlement. And part of the reason for that too is that prosecutors offices and the courts don't have the resources to have a trial in every one of these cases. And so uh, it has value to the system to uh, offer defendants a concession, a discount, if you will, in order to settle the case because even expending the resource of uh, the court's time, a judge, a bailiff, a clerk, prosecutor, um, all that, it, it, has, it has value. So if, if uh, you know, people are, are concerned if they've been charged with a crime or crimes uh, it might give them, you know, some relief to know that if their strategy is basically to be honest and own up to all of this, although it would be, it's a mistake in my opinion for anyone to ever just go in and 
throw themselves on the mercy of the court. But what they, they should know is that you know, any competent attorney should be able to uh, uh, make an arrangement to mitigate the consequences of, of the whole incident just by having a conversation with the prosecutor's office. That's an important service that attorneys offer, although you don't see that on uh, you know, dramatizations of you know, courtroom drama. That, that, that's an aspect of lawyering that you don't yeah. often see. Right. Well, it makes, it makes good sense that um, we can negotiate and talk this out as adults and come to an agreement. You know, it seems like that would be a much more efficient way to go than dragging in a, a jury of impartial people. Um, all right. Again, I'm shifting gears. You ready? Yes. I'm just running Go ahead. But I've got some stuff to unload on you, too. All so right. Go ahead. So my question is, um, now, as, um, as the specialist that you are and a criminal defense attorney, I get pulled over for something. Um, what are some of the most common mistakes or what's, what's some of the things I can do to um, protect myself in order from incriminating myself unnecessarily? Because I, I, I'm an idiot. I'm just going to start just telling you, officer, everything <laughs> since I was seven years old I've done wrong, you know. What, what can I do to protect myself? Well, uh, you know, I'm reminded of the saying that a wise man once said nothing. Uh, in other words, uh, it's probably not a, a, a poor maxim to say never miss a good opportunity to shut up. Having said that, um, <laughs> having using words to say that, yeah, yeah. Uh, having said that, uh, <laughs> another thing that comes to mind, I have seen a lot of uh, you know videos, a lot of reels. I think is the popular term, uh, you know, on various you know social media platforms. Uh, other places where you know lay people are giving very bad advice about how to uh, handle an encounter with law enforcement. That's really where my question comes from. I've yes. seen a few of those and thought, mm, yes. that seems mm -hmm. like a terrible idea. Okay, uh, you know one thing that people should be aware of. Okay, uh, you know judges are really smart people. Okay, and uh, you would think that a judge would be a smart person, but one thing that I've I've noticed over the years is that most people still <laughs> underestimate them. And uh, the, the, the relevance of that, of that point is that the case law recognizes, okay, that police work is where the rubber meets the road. That's right. Okay. And this is not like a, a fair and a kind world out there in the world of law enforcement. And if you're going to have police that are going to be able to enforce the laws, you have to cut them some slack in the way that they handle very volatile and potentially dan dangerous situations. In a second, they only have a second to make a decision. Yes. That's, that's right, okay. And so, uh, you know, a, a police officer, you know, pulls you over and says license and registration, and you roll up the window and lock the door and stick your license on the door, uh, you know, that, that's not gonna fly, okay. The, the, the law is going to give that police officer the discretion to say, no, I need you to roll down your window. No, I need you to unlock your door. No, I need you to turn the car off, okay? Uh, you know, no, I need you to put the keys in the console on the floor or, you know, or, you know, or give them uh, to me. And, you know, th there's, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to the law as, for, as far as stop and detention. Of course, as, as you know, having had eight years of experience as a police officer, but my advice to anybody Okay, who is being encountered uh, by law enforcement. First of all, uh, to have the right to identify okay, you, 
they don't really need to uh, have, well, they, they definitely don't need to have what lawyers know as probable cause. Now I'm getting off in the weeds in, in technical terms. But what, what the law requires for them to make an initial encounter and simply identify you uh, is any, any type of, of sus articulable suspicion that they can point to. Okay, uh, you're parked out in the middle of the parking lot in the mall, you're all by yourself in the car in the middle of the night, you're sitting there, um, you know, is that suspicious? Well, I think most people would say, well, it's a little suspicious, at least. Uh, is, is uh, you know, is this person committing a crime by simply being there? Well, not necessarily, but what does that allow law enforcement to do, okay? Well, they can, can they detain you? Well, the short answer is yes, but only for a moment. It would not be inappropriate for that police officer to simply identify you. So if it's discovered later that a crime was committed, they have some idea who, who is in that place at a relevant time so that they have like some ability to begin an investigation if they discover that later. Now, um, another thing to keep in mind that um, most people I, I think are not aware of uh, because police officers are police officers, whether, whether they're wearing a uniform or not, <clears throat> but imagine the situation, <clears throat> excuse me, you're walking down the sidewalk and a police officer is walking the other way or maybe they're riding a bike, like we have bike, uh, bicycle patrol in Salt Lake City, and they stop and say hello. You know, how are you? Um, you know, I'm Officer Smith. Uh, who are you? This is what is uh, known in the law as a level one encounter. So in other words, the fact that they're police officers doesn't mean that they can't talk to strangers like other people. As long as their behavior is otherwise lawful, you know, they're not detaining anybody. A lot of people are under the mistaken impression that they're being detained because a uniformed officer is talking to them. But it's not unlawful for a uniformed officer just to have casual conversations with strangers as they go about their business. Now, in order to detain a person, okay, there has to be a reason, and there's you know, many reasons I can think of that would give a police officer grounds to detain a person. The most common concept that arises in that context is the concept of probable cause. Probable cause has been defined uh, by the appellate courts as a situation where a reasonable person in the, in the police officer's position, okay, uh, in light of all of the facts and circumstances can be observed, okay, would conclude that it's at least more likely than not that a crime has been committed or has been the process of being committed and that the person they're detaining uh, committed that. Okay. That is grounds for a, a detention. And the law in Utah is that police officers can make an arrest okay, for uh, either a, a, a felony or a misdemeanor that is committed in their presence, okay. Uh, they can also make an arrest of, uh, of a suspected felon if the, fe if the crime is not committed in their presence and the circumstances don't otherwise require them to get a, a warrant such as the suspect going into their, into their residence uh, under circumstances that are not necessarily exigent. Um, but that, that's usually the context in which the detention arrives. Police officers, uh, you know, have an objective reason 
to suspect that a crime has been committed. And on that point, I think it's also important for people to know that uh, a lot of people get hung up, say they get pulled over and they're concerned, well, I got pulled over because of the color of my skin, because, the, because I have, you know, like uh, tattoos that show, um, because they didn't like my car, you know, my, my car had bumper stickers they didn't like, or that, you know, my car is really, you know, tricked out and they, you know, they, they didn't like that, so they picked on me. You know, what the courts do on that question is they, is they, they've said they're not going to try to get in the heads of police officers to see what's the, you know, the actual motive is by trying to, to pick their brain or read their mind. The question the court asks is whether the objective circumstances that the police officer could observe would support the detention. And if the objective circumstances support their, uh, the detention, they're not going to get into subjective intent. Hmm. Perfect. Interesting. You know, the, but that's, that's kind of in the nitty gritty, okay? For your average person, me, I'm, I'm riding my motorcycle, I get pulled over or something like that. Um, and maybe you could speak a little bit more to this. One of the things that I think, I know my dad taught me this, and I, I'm sure, you know, you go back generations, one, if you get caught with something or you, you're getting in trouble for something, you're in this country, you get a beautiful thing that you have the right to a lawyer, you have the right to a court date, okay? That's when your fight actually happens. A lot of people think that they can come in and then they, the reels and whatnot that you're talking about where these people are trying to recite the law to the, to the police officer, that's not really, okay, number one, they're wrong more often than they're not, but number two, that's not the time for you to have that fight. The best thing that you could do and the advice I think that you would give to anybody anytime you're doing is to shut up until you get to the lawyer. Would that be fair? Uh, yes, yes. And, you know, a lot of people... Uh yeah, as you said, you said it well, I think, that uh, that is not the forum or the context where you're going to win that argument. My advice to someone would be that, uh, you know, if they feel like the officer's conduct is inappropriate, okay, uh, they, they might ask for that officer to radio a supervisor, okay, uh, and, and he may refuse to do it. Uh, but if, if they arrest you and put you in jail unlawfully, what you really need to do is, is contact a lawyer and you know, then bring a grievance or even a lawsuit uh, against the offending officer or the agency if you feel their conduct is unlawful after receiving a lawyer's advice. But uh, you know, obviously you're not going to win the argument right on the street. The police officer has a right to control the situation for their own safety. Um, yeah, just just don't argue. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that, I think that's a, something that everybody on those because we've all seen those videos. That's what it. That's what it is. That's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Like you have, you get to have a court date. You're going to have a court date for this. Don't argue with the cop because more times than not, you're just going to make it worse for yourself. And then if you piss the cop off, okay, he has, like you said, he has the right to. Now he's really going to be paying attention to what's going on around him and, and he's going to write up everything that he can possibly write up. Yeah. And I think another piece of advice that I would give to people who may face that situation, which will be everyone, I think, or nearly everyone at one, one time or another, is that police officers are human beings. Uh, you know, that may be under the heading of duh, but I think a lot of people would benefit from being reminded of that. These are, are human beings and they, they probably have a family. They probably have 
you know, a wife. They probably have children. They have people that they love who love them. They want to get home safely and see those people. And, you know, they, they, when they have a bad day at work and they carry some of the emotional baggage from the bad day at work home, that affects their family life. These are human beings. Uh, I don't want to overshare again. Uh, I, haven't had, uh, I haven't had a traffic ticket in a lot more than a decade. Uh, doesn't mean I haven't been stopped, uh, but I talked my way out of all the tickets. And uh, it wasn't a law degree that allowed me to do that at all. It was just common sense. And uh, to be courteous, to be respectful, to be cooperative, and uh, now that now that I've said this, I hope that all those police officers are not watching. They'll come and give me a ticket for sure next time and make it stick. Uh, but but just simply being. I heard uh, your podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But simply simply being uh, polite and and uh, cooperative uh, goes a long way because these these are just human beings that want to get home to their families like the rest of us. Yeah. The way I look at it, oftentimes is like. People, when they go to restaurants, they usually treat the people that make their food very well, right? Because you don't want your food to get screwed with. You want to have good food. <laughs> Why would you treat someone who has the ability to put handcuffs on you, put you in the back of a car and take you to jail? Why would you treat them poorly? Just treat them well. You'll have a better outcome. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it goes without saying, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, would argue with me and say, ah, oh, you know, but there's bad cops out there and, you know, uh, w w without a doubt, my my comment uh, in response to you know that kind of comment is that um, police uh, departments are operated by municipalities, in other words, cities or counties, and uh, the politicians, such as mayors or county commissioners, who are in charge of decision making for operating that entity, one of the big liabilities that they have is if they have an incompetent police force, a police force that routinely uh, violates people's civil rights, that's an enormous liability. And in order to be a municipality that has a police department, you also have to be able to have buy insurance policies that ensure the police, uh, the, the, the police department uh, from, you know, complaints, lawsuits, from the public, and uh, you know they they they've got to be insurable, and so uh, the relevance of, of of all that is if there is a bad cop, the likelihood that he'll get he or she will get weeded out by their own department, I think, is very high. There's bad cops out there. I don't think they last in the system. Yeah, that's what I think. Hmm. Well, I'm going to do a hard switch here because I, I, one of the things that I, I find pretty interesting about you, Steve, is, um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to unveil this to everybody else here, it is your background and how you got to being a, a lawyer. And one of the things that we really care about here is, is mindset and, and how you go through this. So I want to know, so for, for everybody listening, Steve was a Division One football player. He played for the U, right? As uh, a defensive end? For, for a time, I, I, I practiced with the team. I played at Wyoming. Oh, you played before, at Wyoming before that, yeah. Interesting. For okay. one year, yeah. Okay, and then you were a, you were actually a teacher before you became a lawyer. I was a public school teacher for a time. I taught secondary English for uh, six years, and then I uh, at the community college level for like one year. Interesting. And I, I was a teaching assistant at Utah State while I was doing a master's degree in English many years ago. 
Okay, and then the, the third thing I kind of want to bring up, and I've got a point to this, so stay with me, all right? Um, but, and then you also are very involved with animals and, and livestock and whatnot. Uh, that you actually are a, a cowboy in a sense that, um, you, tell us a little bit, just a little bit about your, the horseshoeing. Yeah, well, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, as a boy growing up, uh, uh, my maternal grandfather especially, uh, he, he was from a working farm, working ranch, and, you know, he left the ranch and he became a lawyer, but so although he, you know, left the farm, I think he, the farm never left him, and so I was exposed to that, and uh, I admired him a great deal, and I, I learned about horses. I learned to shoe horses, and there was a day where I wanted to return to school and didn't have the ability to finance it, so I thought, well, how will I do this? And the solution I came up with is to shoe horses as a business, and I didn't realize at first um, how big the gap was between me and the real pros. Uh, but I, I closed the gap when my economic survival depended upon it for a time. That's really how I, I financed law school. So there was, uh, in, wow. in, in my 30s, which was the 1990s, that's getting to be, people my age think about the 90s and they think, oh man, that was a long time ago, that was 20 years ago, but it's actually 30. Um, Trust me, I'm how aware. That and it's, it's, it's funnier if you're an old guy like me. I'm laughing. Um, yeah. yeah. But, uh, These kids it, were bored. It, then. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I supported myself by uh, sh by being uh, the, the the term is a farrier. It's farrier. an antiquated term. F a r r i e r, uh, farrier, a shoer of horses, a blacksmith specifically who is also a shoer of horses, and that's how I supported myself in my 30s. That's how I financed law school. Did you have the truck and the whole thing like the? Because I've seen those farrier trucks yeah. and they have, you know, you got the iron on the back the all the stuff to shape the shoes and that's it's a big process there's a lot involved in being a, a reasonable competent farrier um yes yes and an interesting aspect of, of that particular uh, a trade is that there is uh, as far as i'm aware at least uh, there's there's no state in the united states that re that issues a license for farriers i think there are some states where you have to have a license to uh, be a plater on a racetrack, on a state-owned racetrack. Mm. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the, so the government is not regulating the industry. It's the Wild uh, West. It, it's the Wild West as far as <laughs> regulation. But, uh, but, but the market regulates the industry um, to, uh, to do well in the business uh, of being a farrier, uh, you have to have top drawer skills. It's, it's, uh, I would recommend to somebody if they consider be, being a farrier, but they didn't feel real passion for it, they should consider it a different trade because you won't, I think, actually be able to do well unless you have real passion for it. It's like, it's like being a guitar player. Uh, it's an artist. Than, yeah. Yeah. In a sense, um, I've I've known a farrier or two yeah. in my day, and in order to do it well, you have to. There's an eye. There's an eye for not laming the horse and doing it well and doing it that it's it'll, they won't get thrown easily and all those things. That's impressive. I, hats off to you. Yeah, yeah. people do it on different levels, of course. And sure. um, you know, I've heard people who are at the very top of the trade there that are you know famous among other farriers say things like it's it, it's something that truly cannot be mastered. It's too difficult to truly be mastered. Well, 
having said that, you know, mastery is relative, I think. Sure. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, to, to gain, uh, you know, a level of mastery where you would be, like, successful in the business of doing it, I, you'd have to be someone who's fairly obsessed with it. Hmm. How far down the obsession train did you get? Oh, I'm fairly obsessed with it. I would describe my skills as, you know, well above average, good, maybe very good, but, you know, not outstanding. Uh, but I, I've really, uh, in, in addition to like what I, else I've done since that time, uh, you know, I, I've really paid some dues in that business. I spent so much time uh, like making horseshoes by hand that I threw away uh, just for practice. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense to the cat. It wouldn't make any sense to the casual observer. <laughs> it's just something I just really wanted to do because it was in me. Well, and you, you also. Now, this is kind of interesting. You also own these animals, too, but you're more on the mules, right? Uh, yeah, I've, I've owned horses in my life, which, you know, people have a hard time understanding. If you're a, a school teacher and you own a horse, how do you do that? Well, you, know, you shoe a lot of horses. That's, that's one way. But, yeah, it, now that I'm old and I don't bounce like I used to, uh, I, I have some mules. I have some mules that I prefer. There was a day where, you know, people who had unruly horses would, you know, lend me their horse. They're hoping I would fix it for it. Under the guise of doing me a favor, I was fixing their problems. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I've known for some time that when I got to be a certain age that if I was, you know, still climbing in the saddle, I'd probably just find myself a good mule, and that's what I've done. Well, That's why maybe is a that? topic for a different podcast, but well, and now we're <laughs> getting off in the in, in the cowboy weeds. Um, yeah, the, the, nothing I can say about this topic is. The, uh, let me uh, let me say one of the most annoying things about mule people, the horse people, is they won't shut up about their mules. Um, <laughs> that's. <laughs> That's the way it is. I was you, should meet, say, you should meet you guys know, that own Indian motorcycles. Yeah, yeah. right. They won't, they won't yeah. quit talking about it. Right. Fuck. <laughs> uh, <you know, laughs> according according to uh, you know like what I've read, historians, anthropologists say somewhere around four five thousand years ago, uh, people quit just eating horses that were in a domestic herd and started training them, using them for transportation. What's really interesting. Not very long after that, we start seeing evidence of mules, which is you know a cross between a female horse and uh, you know male uh, donkey and illusion donkey specifically. They're they're large donkey, but um, so mule, mules show up almost as soon as people are, are riding horses. And, and you know, uh, not being a professional anthropologist, one thing that's one of my opinions is th very interesting to me is that uh, nothing shapes the military history of the world uh, until the invention of the airplane more than the development of cavalry. So in other words, it seems to me that for 4,000 years who ruled the world in terms of military might had a great deal to do with who had cavalry in the British Empire. Uh, that is, you know, the quintessential example of imperialism, I suppose. Uh, that is one aspect of, of British culture, the cavalry culture, the cavalry uh, like culture in the British military to this day is is exemplary, um, you know, to the world, if you would. But of course, it's not the automobile so much that displaces the importance of the horse in welfare. 
as much as the airplane, in my opinion, because the airplane can do something that, that similar to the horse in that it can go places where there are no roads. And that's really what the horse, and of course, like motorized vehicles are getting better all the time, but I would contend that they are still no match for a good horse, a good mule. But your question about the differences in mules, uh, you know, the, the, the folklore, the, the you know, the word on the street about mules is that they're smart, but they're also stubborn and mean. And um, not to me, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but of course, I'm the guy that, I'm guy that climbs under a live horse and like trims its feet with razor sharp tools and nails shoes on, and, you know, being under a horse. So that's I'm probably not exemplary of how it would be for most people. But who's ornery here? Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> but. Mules, um, their brain is wired just a little different. And there's things that horses do better than mules. They're, they're generally run faster than mules. They're definitely, uh, they're usually almost always lighter in the bridle, more responsive, more sensitive to cues from the bit or the reins or legs, you know. Uh, but mules' brains, when there's a crisis or there's a threat, okay, they... They don't spook as easily, typically. They uh, always think about where they're stepping before they step, even in the midst of a crisis, which would be a good thing, I think, for people to do, too. When, when the heat is turned way up, do you react? Do you think about it before you make a move? Uh, mules, they, they tend to do that, and they are very opinionated about people. Uh, if you have a group of mules and a group of people that are going to go ride these mules, the mules belong to an outfitter. There may be one person in that group for whatever reason. Maybe they're loud. Maybe they gesticulate wildly. Maybe they wear like some like funny-smelling cheap aftershave. Uh, but it's not unusual that there's just a person in that group that the mules don't take to, to for whatever reason. But if, if you're going to ride through the mountains 30 miles, uh, by yourself, I would recommend that you take a good mule. And there's there's some great trail horses. I'm not taking that away, but what I would say to, you know, maybe uh, quarter horse people, for example, that got a quarter horse that's just a great trail horse, I say if you got a quarter horse that will walk as far and as fast with as much strength, endurance, and uh, like not spook easily like a mule, definitely don't sell him. It's a rare thing. Mm -hmm. Now we got from gun rights to, to mules. Oh, yeah. oh this goes. <laughs> Hang on tight. This is what we do here. <laughs> oh, man. Huh. Okay. So we got mules and, and football background. So now my question is, is, okay, so you've got those completely different and kind of obscure to the law. Okay. How does that shape how you handle the mental strain and, and, the, and the approach with your clients? Using that, like your teaching comes out because I've seen it. Your, your, uh, your, I, I call it your John Wayne. Your John Wayne comes out. I know that you've, you've wrestled with mules. So wrestling with, with clients is, is something, you know, when you, when, you have, when you have a need for that, that's a tool that you pull out and, and you use. So how has that really shaped your mindset in, in practicing law in the back half of your career? Boy, well, uh, you know, another very good question. We're like a mutual admiration society here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, one thing that life has taught me, whether I, I whether it's uh, you know being a school teacher, being a lawyer, 
you know, being a horse trainer, a horse farrier, is uh, the importance of, of choice. Um, when you train a horse, what you have to do is you have to create a situation where the horse understands what is wanted. But the horse always has a choice. He can do what wanted, what's wanted or he can do uh, you know, something else. And the horse will always do, I think, uh, if he doesn't respect you, what he thinks he can get away with or if he does respect you, uh, what he thinks that you want. Or the third category is he will do whatever he feels is necessary just simply to survive. But what you do as a horse trainer, if you, if you want to make a good horse, you create a situation where the horse now has to make a choice and you're encouraging him to make the right choice so that becomes a habit. Okay, he gets in the habit of making the right choice and when, when the horse routinely makes the right choice, then you have a trained horse. And the, and, and the reason that that horse will learn to make that right choice, I, I don't feel that he has a moral sense like most humans where he's discerning right and wrong. He simply does what he believes, what, what, what he has learned by experience is, is the easier option. It works better for him. It results in less distress, less conflict, less, less problems, so he learns to choose it. Well, um, you know, maybe it's under the heading of duh, maybe it's trite, but with people too. Um, you know, you can't change a person's mind by telling them they're wrong. Okay? You can't usually change a person's mind by arguing with them. You can't change the way they think or the way that they do things by simply confronting them. So how do you do that? You know, uh, one way I think that you uh, do that is, uh, you know, you illustrate what it is that you want them to understand with examples, uh, with narratives which I suppose is a, a subcategory uh, of an example or a way of presenting an example. Anyway, that, that's one thing that comes to mind. I don't know how interesting or how useful uh, that is, uh, but with the example of a client, uh, without you know, doing anything that would disclose the identity of another client, uh, because that would be a breach of confidentiality, which is a very serious you know, ethical problem is to uh, give them examples of other narratives, other scenarios where people were uh, you know, faced with like, similar problems and give examples of you know, how, how they addressed it, what the outcome was, and uh, just let them consider all that and let them make the choice, which is my ethical responsibility to them, is to be a competent advisor, to give them advice, but ultimately uh, the choice is theirs. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, so we're, we're, we're wrapping this. We're going to wrap this down now. We've, I've got five questions, I think, left here. Okay. Two are going to go real fast. These are more for me because I'm morbidly curious because of stuff that's going on right now. Uh, first question. How do DAs become DAs? Uh, they, they get a law degree. And, and, and you're talking about the district attorney. You're talking yes. about the prosecutors. Okay. And, uh, Is it uh, an election process? Uh, no, they, 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 okay, so the, the district attorneys, yes, they are, they are elected. And when I say district, it might help some of the listeners to understand 
that the, the term district is thrown around a lot. We have district courts in the state of Utah. What the, the, where that name comes from is that uh, they divide uh, the state of Utah in, into districts that are comprised of anywhere from three to five counties. I think there's 30 counties in the state of Utah or something very close to that. But there are eight judicial districts in the state of Utah and that just refers to a geographic region of several counties in the state that they call, you know, it is a subdivision of the state court system. District attorneys, on the other hand, who are, are the, the prosecutors, at least one category of prosecutors who are authorized by statute to prosecute crimes in the state of Utah, uh, is uh, part of the county attorney's office for, you know, whatever county. And uh, the, the county attorney uh, or the district attorney uh, is an elected official and the assistant district attorney, so licensed attorneys who also work under their supervision at, as prosecutors, uh, they are licensed lawyers who simply go apply for the job and are hired. Hmm. So there can be several assistant district attorneys. Oh, oh yes. I, I don't know how many, but I would imagine that in Salt Lake County, Davis County, Utah County, that uh, yeah, there, there there are many. Many. Yeah. Well, unless you look at the thing, then Sim Gill pretty much tries every case, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he yeah he is uh, Mr. Sim Gill. He is an elected official. Yes. Okay. And then how often are they elected? Um, I believe it's every four years. I believe it's it's four years for the district attorney, but I'm not certain of that. I haven't I haven't researched it recently. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, that's yeah. I think you're right on that yeah. one. Yeah. Trying to think on a separate side note, Alec, if you've got anything uh, relevant questions to the times today, legal questions, throw those in here. And Mr. Rob, you're up for your big three. <clears throat> <laughs> Uh, so the question, uh, Steve, that I like to ask people on the podcast is, if you were able to go back in time um, and there's that young farrier paying his way through law school, what words of advice would you give to him um, now as uh, the experienced seasoned man you are? Wow. Um, you know, I, I suppose, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, the occupation profession that I chose, I, I think that. You know, that's uh, a, a good question for anyone to consider. You know, as I mean, uh, as I interpret that as being your, your question is, in, in other words, you know, what important things has, have li has life taught you? Uh, especially, you know, as, as it pertains to, you know, your, your, your course of action, what decisions that you'll make, especially as a young person. One of the, um, you know, great ironies of life, in my view, is the decisions that you make that affect your life in the most profound ways you're making the time of your life when you are the least experienced mm. but uh, having said that uh, you know it may seem trite but I would say you know uh, without question uh, you know believe in yourself be in touch with yourself uh, listen to your intuition trust it trust it trust your intuition uh, find good mentors Okay, find somebody who seems like that they are where you would like to be. Uh, make a friendship with them. Uh, bring value to that relationship so that they have uh, a reason and incentive to be in that role for you. And uh, 
you know, find, find, uh, find a good mentor uh, for what you're doing. And then uh, ride motorcycles with them. <laughs> uh, thanks. That's and, very and kind. I, I, I think that would be true, you know, for it doesn't, it's, it's not, you know, applicable to, you know, becoming a lawyer more than like anything else, whatever it is you want to be, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, I think that, that that's a key. I think that the way to gain mastery uh, over any skill is to uh, become a part of a community where people have that. Uh, there's so much learning. You know, I I see a lot of uh, things on social media about people with uh, you know high levels of education, thinking that they understand so much more than they do. And there's a lot of people who have great understanding who don't have necessarily have academic degrees. And I realize that you know they're thinking about people like me because I have several academic degrees. But I'll just say. I acknowledge that so much learning does not happen in school. Okay, so much learning happens in other activities and other aspects of life, but that's precisely the reason I say it is like you see someone who is doing what you like, what you would like to do, who is doing it well, who is succeeding at it, form a friendship. Okay, uh, form a friendship that is so much more valuable than uh, just reading books on the subject. I would say do that too. You know, read everything you can, and, but, but find a mentor. And uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna wake up tomorrow and think about this question and think, oh, I should have said this, I should have said that. Uh, but I, I suppose the other, the other advice uh, that I would give to my younger self would simply uh, be, be patient. As, as life develops, as the, the, the plot of your life begins to unfold, if it seems like things are not going your way, if it seems like things uh, are, are, are not turning out well, continue to make good decisions and, and wait, okay? And, and wait, and uh, I, I know that there's probably some uh, like really clever cliche or, or like like proverb about you know comparing yourself to others and I can't think of one right now it'd be better if I could but I think that many young people and I would include myself in this that they become preoccupied with what you know everybody who doesn't live under a rock recognizes as being the unfairness of life some people seem to be having great outcomes you know despite possibly making poor decisions or possibly seeming to like lack merit in many respects. Some guys have all the luck. Huh? That, that sort of thing, yeah. Like the some guys have all the luck phenomenon sort yeah. of thing. Um, the advice I would give to my younger self and, and to any young person is that don't, don't focus on that. Don't focus on the comparisons. Uh, don't, be, uh, you know, don't be envious or, or angry if things don't seem to go your way as much as it is for other people because you don't really know how it is for them okay and what you really have got to do is you got to focus on yourself but yes find mentors you know seek advice seek good advice from people uh, who seem like that they possess judgment that you can trust um, and just uh, focus on yourself make good decisions uh, don't worry about what's happening with everybody else so much. Great advice, that is great advice. 
Um, so many times I think that we spend so much time, uh, that's one of the three thieves of happiness is comparison. Criticism and judgment are the other two. And I think that that one, if you're carrying that in your back pocket, comparing yourself to what I sh where I should be, what I, these um, unrealistic expectations, you can rob your now. You can, you can take away the opportunity to be happy now. And um, I look back on my life and um, I think of all of the great times that I've had that I didn't enjoy because I was busy comparing myself to what I, what I should have, where I should be, what I, I was shooting all over myself. And so um, I think that that's some, some great advice. The, um, the other question is, if you were to look into the future now and you see, um, and this is, a, this is a kind of an ambiguous question, but you can see what's happening in the world. You've now, you are an industry expert. You've been a witness front row of your industry for over 20 years. And regardless of what anyone says, um, that puts you in expert level of understanding the, the history or the progression of the business. Um, and my question would be is, where do you see this criminal defense, this, this business going in the next three years. There's, we're in a volatile time. Boy. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I know what you mean. Um, so the pendulum has swung. We have the pendulum has swung quite, you know, in the, in the, in the defense world, in my opinion, it's swung back into the, um, You know, I, I realize that there are lawyer, lawyer jokes for a reason. Okay. Um, Here we go. One of my least favorite things about being a lawyer, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Hopefully other lawyers are not listening to the podcast, or maybe we want, we want them to listen to, sure. Um, but one of my, one of my uh, least favorite things about uh, being a lawyer is having to deal not with law other lawyers generally because there are a lot of people that are just uh, you know like great people and scholars and you know they're, they're a pleasure but you know having you know high conflict you know experiences with they're unnecessary with with other lawyers that's that's one of my least favorite things about being in the profession but where I, I I'm trying to go with that is that you know despite all the all the the negative buzz about lawyers uh, generally, I think that a free society, that one of the guarantees of maintaining a free society is to have lawyers who are very good lawyers. Okay, I think that that is, is at least one of like the front, front line, line. The front line, yeah, of, well said. Uh, of a defense, uh, of, of like forming a defense about changes of, in government that would lead to tyranny because among other things, Okay, uh, lawyers who are, are truly scholars, okay, of of their profession, uh, they understand the history, they understand the issues, on a level that only lawyers do. Um, just one 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 thing that comes to mind. Uh, another thing that comes to mind, you know, I I think that in society, we are experiencing a decline of civility generally. Agreed. Um, people, uh, you know, the, this this idea that you know we should what one thing we should primarily teach children is to have good manners, to socialize them in a way where they learn to be respectful, especially to adults and teachers, well, their children. You know, I, I think that that's uh, starting to take a back seat, and uh, I think incivility is also a threat to the to the legal profession. 
And I think that licensing agencies, the state bars, the various states, that they're aware of this and they're trying to find ways to offer training that will encourage civility and uh, to promote civility and also, you know, to, to police incivility. Uh, but I, I think that that's, that's a concern. I've, I said it before, I was, uh, uh, I played the role of a judge in a high school moot court contest, and uh, this, this experience sticks in my head. One of the things that I complimented the contestants on was the fact that they came, uh, they came to court for their mock trial, dressed appropriately, groomed appropriately. And my comment to them is that by doing that, you showed respect to uh, not only the judiciary, okay, the judges that you're arguing before, but to the judicial process in doing that. But the reason, the real point, the reason that that is important is without respect, I feel that there cannot be order. Without order, I don't feel that there can really be justice. So in other words, I think that uh, you know, respect, civility is necessary in order to have a judicial process to administer justice. Mm. And it's very subtle. Yeah. And when I see, for example, you know, the level of incivility, um, the United States Congress, uh, perhaps some of it's warranted. Uh, but as a general proposition, it concerns me it, because what I, I believe is that when we come to the point where words are useless, uh, then what? Then violent conflict is imminent. And here we are. That is a great answer. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I, I fully believe that you are 100% right and that's we are running out of words. Uh, because we have lost the humanization of one another. Um, we don't look to one another as valuable other humans. We look at you as your opinion is wrong, which makes you lesser. And I, I really I really am grateful for that. Um, that, that means a lot. Um, in, in wrapping this up, the, the thing that I would like to share is that if you're looking for um, some honest, straight advice, legal advice, and you are looking for um, someone that has your best interest in mind, regardless of... Uh, the outcome, um, your opinion even, or your ego, it's good to have someone like Steve in your back pocket, someone that's going to represent you well. And so I really am grateful for your time here and sharing your professionalism and some of your ideas. Thank you for your time tonight. Well, high praise indeed. And thank you. Thank you for being here. I, I, I enjoy this. It's a great talk. If uh, you have enjoyed this podcast, ladies and gentlemen, please share it with your friends and family. Tell your uh, neighbors and everyone at church that this is the one you want to listen to, um, especially if you have a motorcycle club. Tell them all about it. We have really enjoyed having some special guests on here offering those golden nuggets, that advice that we, have, uh, we can take into our lives. And it's important that you share this message. Get on, like our podcast, and leave a comment. Help us get to the top because that's what our goal is, is to share some really quality messages in the world that needs it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.